Problem Gambling podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more. If you would like to support this podcast, as well as our frontline treatment, prevention and helpline services, please consider donating €5 Euros per month using the link in the episode description. Thank you. Welcome to the Problem Gambling Podcast. I'm Barry Grant, an addiction counsellor with External Problem Gambling. And my co-host is Tony O'Reilly, also an addiction counsellor with the project and the co-author of the book, Tony 10. And today we're delighted to have a brilliant guest who we've been hoping to have on for a long time and who is one of the biggest, I suppose, advocates for recovery from gambling addiction on the island of Ireland. Uh, his name is Oshin McConville. He's a, a Gaelic football All-Ireland winner. I was looking at the, your list of uh, so many different titles that you've won in Ulster and inter-county level and at club level. It's absolutely frightening because I also saw on your Wikipedia page that you're three years younger than me and that just scares the bejesus <laughs> out of me. Um, so I know she's also an addiction counsellor and he's working with Sporting Chances, which is, which is an organisation that was set up by Tony Adams, former Arsenal England football player. Uh, and Oshin, you might tell us a little bit more about that when we're talking today. But welcome aboard, Oshin McConville. Thanks a million for taking the time to talk to us today. How are things up in your neck of the woods at the moment? Thanks, lads. Thanks for having me. Uh, things up here are uh, very much like they are the rest of the country. Uh, the only people we're seeing at the minute is our families. So um, it's it's uh, the first time around. I think you know there was that novelty sort of thing. I think I spend an awful lot of time traveling, an awful lot of time in the road, a lot of time away from home. And um, when the first uh, lockdown came around, it, it was manna from heaven for me because it gave me an opportunity to stay at home. It gave me an opportunity to uh, you know spend a lot more time with the kids. Uh, I've th- we have three kids, uh, eight, six, and two. And um, as I said, the weather was a lot better. It was more enjoyable. <laughs> I have to say this this time around, it has it had definitely has been a lot tougher. And I think not just on like okay, as far as you know us as, as adults and what we're used to doing, but in particular for kids and just one of the simple things. You know, uh, our youngest youngest boy, he's six, like and uh, like he he just loves school. He loves the interaction. Um, and he misses that big time and I can see you know you can just see how you know you can see somebody struggling the other guy uh, he wouldn't care if he never goes back to school and he and he has that many interests outside of you know his friends that he he's still able to interact with them in a way um, um, through, through PlayStation or playing games or whatever so uh, I can see you know how one lad is really really struggling the other one you know, as I say is, he's prospering yeah, and it's uh, like like you were saying there, like the first lockdown, I think, was a novelty, and a few people kind of took it as a bit of downtime, and they made their banana bread and they did all their yoga and whatever their Joe Wicks and all that sort of stuff. This time around, I mean, a lot of people are struggling this time around. Like I, I'm sure you're seeing it in your work, and you know, friends and family, and Tony seeing it as well, and I'm seeing it every day talking to people in counselling sessions. Like this one's a slog. This is a tough one. I think the big thing for me this time is that I always see stuff in other people. This time I've seen a lot of stuff in myself that I, that I wouldn't be, uh, 
you know, that I realised there's still a little bit of work to be done there. Uh, I attempted, um, I've, I think I've attempted to eat my way through this one, but uh, that's that doesn't work either because, you know, one of the things I think in my recovery that was that was really good was there was a little, there was a nice little bit of balance there. There was, you know, eat, eating fairly well, you know, um, modicum exercise. Uh, and there was a nice, uh, as I say, a balance and mix of things going on. Uh, it's it's harder to get that mix now. I I feel. Yeah, definitely. I think people's energy and their motivation to do it is uh, is kind of at an all time low, and it's the worst time of the year to be trying to do <laughs> any of that stuff. Yeah, I I, I I think uh, some I said it night, and I think sometimes the best thing I can do is buy another piece of equipment because that's definitely going to motivate me but as we know it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work like that you know it uh, it, uh, it actually works in an opposite way but you know that hopefully we, we get there with it you know I, I think people have learned maybe this time as much as there's a lot of people struggling I think a lot of people have learned not to be too hard on themselves you know, this time around that, you know, it is obviously exceptional circumstances. And I suppose that's the one thing I would say to people is just don't be too hard on yourselves. You know, this time around, don't have too high of expectations. Just have little small goals. And in the house, that's sort of what we're working at the minute. Yeah. Just, just no. there, Sorry, Tony. Yeah. Just come in there. It's like it's um, working in, in Coomber at the time with the aftercare meetings. Um, I always remember one person saying, he had a bad week and it was just about holding on. So I think sometimes even going through this, as you said, the third part yeah. and lockdown, it's kind of like sometimes it's just about holding on. We don't have to be meeting our expectations or, or whatever that looks like. But I think it's, I know for me, I've struggled probably more, most in this one and you're trying to eat your way out of it. I was trying to buy my way out of it because I found <laughs> it, all behaviours were definitely coming back in in regard yeah. to shopping and online. And it's it's amazing how how similar it is or was to what it was like when gambling, like nearly the, the the kind of ritual of buying and then waiting for it arriving and sometimes even trying to hope that it arrives the day that my partner's not here so she doesn't see the stuff <laughs> arriving through the door. And then it goes into the wardrobe and you never see it again. But it's just that, it's just about kind of yeah. and it's facilitating that and kind of rationalizing and say, well, if I'm after missing out on a holiday or I'm after missing out on meeting the lads for a, you know, a night out. So I'm going to buy myself something to reward myself. I suppose because I suppose in recognition of um, the same behaviours that would have been there with the gambling I was drifting into a place that I didn't want to be in so it was interesting to kind of catch myself and for once kind of practice what I was preaching to other people so it's good and it's, I think it's the most important thing for, for us like because uh, sometimes we think we have because of the you know the walk we're in and all that sort of thing sometimes I think we feel as if we have it licked we have it sorted we you know and just to admit to yourself and 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 not be too disappointed in yourself and and, and also to be able to recognize it is the big one for me yeah. and that's always been the big one since i you know since the first day i went into uh it's, it's the first day i get into treatment it was always about starting to recognize things uh i would say on a scale of one to ten my self-awareness you know when i was gambling was zero in fact if, if you can go any lower than zero uh, I would go there, but um, the self there was no self awareness, you know. Yeah, and I would have that bit of self awareness now. It doesn't always work in stopping the behavior, but I catch myself a lot of times just before it gets to a problematic level. But it's it, it, it usually comes in in times of uncertainty or insecurity that would have been there from years ago from kind of childhood and stuff like buying things to make myself feel better or feel secure. 
I used to surround myself with nice things. I kind of still do it to a certain extent to make myself secure. But I think there is a huge awareness and it is about allowing yourself a little bit of it, but also to recognize when a little bit has gone too far. And that's what I try to get that balance back in, like like what you mentioned before. And it is, it's difficult to get it in, especially when you don't have those other outlets that you usually have, like even just going for a coffee with a friend or even just meeting up with someone or going down to see family and friends down in Carlo. Like you don't have that at the moment. And I, I don't know about yourselves, but I tend to drift into the old behaviors because of that lack of things that tend to regulate my emotions. That, that would have been definitely a big part of recovery. Yeah. And I think that's the situation for so many people at the moment that <clears throat> we're all seeking comfort in the things that we have a, a, a formed a relationship with over the years and for some people that's chocolate bars and for some people it's gambling and for some people it's bottles of whiskey and it's different things for different individuals and I suppose there's a lot of comfort stuff going on where on the first lockdown people were running marathons around their back gardens and on their balconies and stuff it ain't happening this time as far as I no can there's, there's like the like just even that almost felt uh, pressure first time around to be doing something constructive <laughs> you're talking about bacon and all that I we we did a bit of did a bit of building onto the onto the house and stuff and put in a wee room for with a uh, pool table and darts board and TV and all that sort of thing and and you know you can go and switch off there but like it nearly drove us bananas doing it you know first time around uh, we are seeing the benefits of, of that now, but uh, as I say, at the time I felt I sort of felt under pressure to, to have some sort of uh, plan or to have some sort of project that we were getting stuck into, and uh, and like as you say, you know, all the people that were, that were running marathons and climbing uh, mountains and you know, baking and you know, I have mates who I never ever thought I'd see. Uh, bacon, but they're all they're all bacon, and I was sitting at home, I was going, I need to stop bacon. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> all these people are going to leave me behind. But uh, like I promised myself, to, my my kids are in uh, are in Gale School, and I promised myself that you know first time around that I was going to uh, get back in. I obviously did errors to quite a decent level when I was at school, but uh, it's all gone. And uh, I said to myself, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn Irish again, but that still hasn't happened. But uh, I have that wee goal in the back of my head, but it's, uh, it's tough with three kids, you know, <laughs> for full time, you know. You find just touching on the bit you're talking about, about people running marathons and doing stuff on their back garden. You found, you find that even looking at social media now, there's not as many of those videos now that there was at the very start. I think people's mindsets have changed, or even how they, again, it doesn't reflect what we were talking about how the mood is different so the people aren't putting up these videos as much you know there's the toilet roll challenge of, of people keeping kind of keeping the toilet roll up upsies whatever we call it or keep up the upsies whatever you just call it well like it, there's not as much as that as well as far as i can see maybe i've just switched off from social media a bit more but there doesn't seem as much positivity in this lockdown which would then you know just to bring it back to the gambling or addiction side which would you'd always wonder would that kind of lead people down a path that maybe they might want to go in regards to um, coping with it in different ways, you know, because there was like you had the Sir Tom over in um, the, the war veteran walking around his guard. You had all that kind of really positivity, you know, people coming on and, and doing different kind of projects and stuff, but there doesn't seem to be that much 
this time around, I, I feel anyway. No, like I'm, I'm, my wife would tell you, we were literally doing a, a, there was a video, we were doing a video of something or other every single day. And it was it was enjoyable because it sort of it was a break from the norm, but definitely that's that's not happening this time around. You know, with all the fundraising and all the different things that were going on, that's that ha, ha, that's lost its momentum. And I think uh, that's that people are just tired. I think people at this stage are tired, and and you know, like I like I I'd be talking to 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 gays who are maybe in a bit of bother and. You know the 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 bedtime just keeps getting later and later, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's earlier and earlier, and you know, there's no rhythm or there's no plan, there's no, uh, there's no norm, norm, there's no normality, there's no uh, like first time round we did a week of homeschooling and just get completely gave up on it because. Uh, we just weren't in. We weren't in that zone this time round. It's like a military operation. Fucking the kids are up at a quarter and nine. You know they're sitting down to do their Zoom for an hour. The next boy, he's in. He does. He does that. One comes in, does the homework. The other one does the homework. They get a share half. Hour, you know, and all these sort of things. And then we're able to let go a bit at the weekend. You, just, you know, people do their own thing. But I definitely think that. And I personally speaking would never have been one for over. Uh, for too much structure, um, but I definitely think for kids structure is is very very important, and for addicts, <laughs> it is so it is so important to have structure, and 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 again, not to make that into you know we have to be accountable for every minute of every day because when I left treatment that was the one of the I suppose one of the misgivings that I had was that I had my day my day planned out Monday to Sunday. I knew what I was going to be doing in every single hour. Now, that, a lot of that was fear. A lot of that was fear because I didn't want to go back, you know, to gamble again. A lot of that was uh, me making sure that that I had this plan and I knew it in my head and, and it was off to a T and I was writing it down and I was doing all those things. And then as time moves on and things uh, begin to become a little bit more normal for you, that structure isn't there anymore but there's still a structure. And and the thing that I would have found with, with this, uh, the lockdown, I don't want to, I probably don't want to keep talking about the lockdown, but uh, the the thing I found with the lockdown is that, that, that those structures, you know, for all intents and purposes, um, and, you know, we are, we are creatures of, we are creatures of habit in a lot of ways, but I also think that, you know, structure is so important to us, and and this has made definitely made me realize it more so than ever. And again, I'm not talking about planning every single hour of every single day, but I'm talking of having things in your day. Like I would have things in my day where if things were normal. You know what I mean? My day would be structured in a certain way to try and get the most out of the day. Um, but. You know, this time around, we have we have been a lot more rigid, and to be honest, it has made for definitely for a happier house. Tony, did you want to come in there? Or no, no, no. no I was oh, just... sorry. Yeah, no. I mean that that thing of the routine. Like, I mean, I, this is something myself and Tony would talk to people a lot about in the early stages. So somebody just raw, red raw in crisis, and trying to stop gambling. You know, might be day one, week one, whatever, and that thing of okay do plan it down to the T, right? Yeah. Plan your free time down to the T, what you're talking about. Tony's spoken about this before. One of his clients had this whole 
system up on the board and they you know they had this whole kind of scheduler and a planner and uh, we had this uh, app out called recover me and they do something similar and you know people do it in different ways you can do it on the back of an envelope or on a post-it or whatever and i suppose if you're in the early stages of recovery which a lot of people who'd be listening to the podcast will be and they'll be looking for inspiration looking for ideas and i suppose motivation and yeah inspiration from people like yourself who'd be in long-term recovery like tony nymak and me other people who've had on who'd be in long-term recovery that that thing trying to get through the early stages were like that you're saying you had it planned down to the t because i suppose something i was hoping to kind of pick your brain about today like lots of people will be aware of your story of how you developed an addiction and the things some of the things that happened during your addiction and i recommend Anybody who wants to learn more about Oshin's story to get his book, The Gambler, it's excellent. But I suppose what we did as well, I think at the very start, when we were starting out just talk with Tony, we just said, look, if you want to hear Tony's story of addiction, buy the book, Tony 10, right? Or look at the doc documentaries or the YouTube clips or the news clips or whatever it is. And we spoke about Tony's recovery, which wasn't really covered in the book. And I suppose that's what a lot of people even today, we're getting an email off a guy talking about what he's getting from the podcast, because it's, you'd notice yourself, it's mostly men for the time being. We're going to see more and more women seeking help, that's for sure. And men are not great help seekers across the board, whether it's gambling or anything else. And if they can find any other way of getting the information or the help or the advice without interacting with another human being, that's the yeah. first the first thing they will do, right? And I said, we're all men here. So that's the first thing we will do, right? So the podcast, I think for some men in particular and women, we have some female listeners too, They'll do that before they pick up the phone or send an email or send a text or go to a meeting or go to a counseling session or a treatment center, right? So if that's the case, that's a way of getting some useful information across to people and a bit of inspiration as well. So like if we were to look at, let's assume lots of people have heard your story because I've been on different conferences and talks with you and Tony has told the story hundreds of times and you must be sick to your back teeth of telling your story at this I'm stage. only sick I'm only sick listening to myself <laughs> <laughs> so let's assume that a lot of people know your story and because I, I don't want to go dragging you down that path again if you, if you unless you specifically want to maybe that'll come into it but like what was the biggest thing for you or in the early stages if you can cast your minds back mind back to the early stages of your recovery the things that really helped you if it was something like that planning your time down to the last hour to the last minute or obviously you went for did you go through Coonwara as well yeah i went through Coonwara, yeah. yeah yeah so i mean that's... Uh, and it was it's a uh, uh, as people know that that's a 12-week program um if people if people ask me now about it, uh, uh, there's, there's, I suppose there's different ways I could describe it. But if I can go back to sport for a second, and if you think about, I always consider my time in Kunwara as my preseason training, if you like. Like uh, if I if I if, why have my preseason preseason training done? So when I actually went into the match, you know, when I walked out through the door and I was I was starting to play, if you like, um. I had work, I had the work done, okay, but I still had to go out on the field and put that into practice, and uh, and that's that's the tough part. I mean, I, I used to play with loads of lads, and honestly, they wouldn't give you a kick at training, 
but they wouldn't get a kick when when you when they played in a match. And the, the thing about um, the reason why I want to talk about the preseason training is that I meet a lot of people now nowadays, and the first thing they'll say to me is, "I don't want anybody else to know." I'm not going to meetings. I'm not going into treatment. Yeah. Can I do this? You've made life very, very difficult for yourself, but that doesn't mean that you can't do it. But the thing about, as I say, about pre-season training or the, or going into a treatment center is that it makes your season or your life or your early parts of your recovery a lot more easier than if you're coming uh, if you if you walk straight into a meeting, for example, but imagine not having either of those things, and I think you know people are very very scared of of meetings in particular because first thing they'll say to me is I, I don't want to walk in there because I, I know I'll know somebody in there, and if I'm going to be honest, uh, this lockdown has has made the introduction of new members, you know, for somebody who doesn't have to walk into the room but can go on to a uh, a Zoom meeting, it has made that has made life for those guys a little bit easier. But I still think they're not getting the true worth of a of a meeting. It's it's uh, it's it's uh, it's still worth doing, obviously, but it's it's just not as effective as as what it would would have been. Uh, I still go back to the simple things that I was taught whenever I before I left that treatment center. That I was not carrying loads of cash around with me. And I know there's different ways to gamble, but I, I was one of those people who, who had cash and walked into a bookies. That's predominantly, that was 95% of the gambling that I'd done. Um, so not carrying a lot of cash around me, not hanging out in the same places, not frequenting the same uh, places, not having the same group of friends uh, and detaching yourselves from the things and the things that trigger uh, your gambling. That sounds as if, I always thought as if that sounds like this gay, here's a gay who's blaming his friends for his gambling. That wasn't the case. But I knew when I was in that company that the tendency was for me um, to gamble. And that's why I think, you know, for people who are in early recovery uh, or people who want to get into recovery, I think the first thing is is to, is to get those uh, couple of things and have somebody to look after your finances. That was the starting point for all of uh for all of my recovery and then the tough part starts because you start to learn about yourself uh i met tony adams uh, i read one book when i was in treatment and that was tony adams book i didn't think i, I would i would have the opportunity to meet him or anything like that but uh he talked at an event that i was talking at at belfast one day and uh, he said something that resonated with me and stuck with me to this day and he says, when you get into treatment, the best thing that you will get back is your thoughts, your feelings, and your emotions. And the worst thing you'll get back is your thoughts, your feelings, and your emotions. And when he said that, it just it just resonated with me straight away. And to be honest, it was my go-to thing uh, a lot of times. Like, I lost my father during my, um, my gamble in 1989, and I studied his grave in 2006, and that was the first time I, I mourned him. You know, I stood at his grave and I cried um, because before that, he didn't have the capacity to do that. And that was my feelings and my emotions coming back to me. Um, but then you have you go about the process of walking through that. And that was one of the things that there's a lot of triggers for people who, who gamble. A lot of people, you know, talk to me um, 
about bereavement. Um, and they talked to me about, uh, you know, abuse of, of, of some form, physical or mental or whatever, whatever it was, bullying. Or, there's, there's obviously, we, when we gambled, that was what we did. That was our, that was the outward sayings that there was something going on in the background. When we get into the background, that's when the real tough, uh, work started for me so if you can imagine I put all those I put all those things in place and they're the easy things I put in place somebody looking after your finances etc but the thing for me um, the thing for me was that when I started to talk about uh, my insecurities and when I started to talk about uh, why I felt I gambled I didn't just have to talk about how to walk me I had to start walking through those things whenever I started to walk through those things um then I was in proper recovery and and then I felt there was an opportunity for long-term recovery because for the first year I I, I don't mind admitting it it was like a roller coaster ride. I was just I was just you know I think it was you that said it uh Barry you know, I was just hanging on hanging on and holding on and doing whatever it took to get through the next day and then you know that's not going to work forever that's not going to work forever, but as I say, it got me through those initial uh, 12 months and, and just that personal growth and that uh, development and, and, you know, getting into recovery and speaking to people, uh, that gave me the opportunity, to, as I said, to sort of kick it on to the next level and, 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 uh, and deal with the issues uh, that I had. And some of those issues, I didn't realize I had them until I, until I get into recovery. Yeah, and I think that's that's really important because I often bring this up with, with people in, in counselling sessions. You know, there's, you would have come across this, I'm sure, or heard the term of a dry drunk. You know, in this in the in the area of alcoholism, there's an idea of a dry drunk, so a person who gives up alcohol, but other than that, they don't really change. They don't grow as a person. They don't change other ways of thinking or behaving towards people. So, but they have abstained from alcohol, which is kind of technically the idea, right? But there's no term for that in gambling. There is, a, there is, a, there is an argument, totally, oh, Barry, that those people would be better off drinking. Yeah. There, yeah. there is that. Yeah. There definitely is that argument. And, and I, again, I would have heard that term, you know, very, very early on because when I went to treatment, the majority of the people that I was in the group that I was in were, 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 were drinkers, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and yet, the underlying issues for them was the same as the underlying issues that I had, you know? Sorry, I cut across you. No, no, you're grandma. And like, I think like there isn't a term for that in, in gambling, but I think it can happen though. Okay. You're abstaining from gambling. You've taken that away, but you're miserable. You're hating yeah. every minute of it. That's not recovery. You've just abstained from gambling. That's the only change you've made. Now there are benefits to that, obviously to you and the people around you. But if you're more unhappy when you're abstaining from gambling than you were when you were in in active addiction, active crisis, then that's a problem. You're not really. That's that's the volcano because that will erupt. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And uh, and I think that's that's the key to me for me as well is that a lot of people you know s stop gambling and um but they never you know they never walk a program and yeah. until you start actually walking a program, um you know you won't get you won't get out of it what you deserve. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
I suppose just going back, because I mean, there was a few things you touched on there. I mean, I know I did a t- talk that you were talking about up in Armagh two or three years ago, and we were talking about this idea of that that I, I think it's access, time, and money. This this idea of you know you're, you're blocking the access, you might self exclude from the bookies or self exclude from online. You're managing the time, so you were talking about that earlier on. You're kind of scheduling your time down to the last T. But I think at that event, I, I could be wrong here, and I've, I've quoted you lots of times on this to different clients. So I really hope I'm not wrong. I think you said that your sister managed your money for eight years, something like that. Am I way off there? She she, ma- she managed them for six years. Okay. She came. She came to me. I think are you going to mention that the thing she came to me after five years. Is that the thing? No, but she came to me. She came to me after five years, and she said, "Right, you know, (laughs) I think it's time to." And I said, "Yeah, look, you know, I'll be down at the weekend," and uh, I avoided her for twelve months. Now she only lives. (laughs) She only lives three miles away. Do you know what I mean? So, but I, but but yeah, no. And the reason for that, uh, Barry, was that I I knew I was ready, but I wanted to be ready, ready, Mm. and I want. I didn't want that. Uh, one thing to to hold me back was yes, you know I, I I knew when I was like when I got into recovery was like the start of my recovery. I wanted the same things that I sort of wanted when I was gambling. If you know what I mean, if this that makes any sense, I wanted instant. I wanted inst. I wanted my family to instantly trust me again. I wanted to have all the money back that I that I had lost. I wanted to have a very good job. I wanted to uh, play football. I want, but I wanted all these things to come back to me, and I wanted them all, uh, as I say, instantly. And um, I soon realised, you know, over a short period of time, probably that none of those things was going to happen. I remember the day that I felt trusted by my family again, and then that gave me the confidence to want to do other things and set other goals. And, and then that moved on to the, you know, taking, uh, taking control back of my finances and being able to, to manage, to manage money again. And, uh, and the strange thing is that in, at, at home now, I, like, uh, myself and my wife would, would manage it together, but I would, I would feel that, you know, I'm actually pretty good at, at, at those things now, you mm. know? Um, but I certainly, it took away a lot of the fear when I come out of treatment and, and she agreed to look after all my finances. Uh, I was working, so I would c- come home on a Friday evening and I would hand her the, the wages and she, we, I had a consolidated loan. I had to pay that. That was all the debts that I had. And, uh, and she was basically just paying whatever I was getting every week. And to be honest, I got to a stage very, very early on where I wouldn't even open my wage packet, so I didn't actually know how much money I was getting every week. I just knew that when she got it, she was paying it off the loan, and and you know it took me eight and a half years to pay that loan off. Two things about that: there was a huge discipline in it, and and I felt I was I felt in my own head that I was paying a price. That makes sense. Yeah. That I had done the crime, uh, and this was my way of doing the time, and uh, and I. I it's not easy. That's that part is not easy because again, like I was, like I was, you know, still fairly young. I was getting on my feet. I met me. Uh, I'd met my wife after a couple of years out of, out of treatment, and um, I wanted to do things. You know what I mean? You know, like there was there's certain material things that you sort of 
feel as if you need at that stage, but I was only able to have them. And, that, and I was only able to have them because I was paying off that loan. But at the end of, of paying off, I remember making the last payment and uh, the, the grat, you know, um, it was very, very gratifying, first of mm. all, to do that. Uh, but also, as I say, I felt as if I'd sort of paid a price in a way. Now, that move sounds like warped thinking on my part, but uh, that was genuinely how I felt at that time. I think a lot of people, that's come up quite a few times that people <clears throat> quite often feel like, okay, I've dug myself into this hole. Now, sometimes people just want to skip to, I just want to get this over with, and they start paying down debt too quickly. I think a lot of time you have to reel people back in and say, hang on, that's the gambling mindset. There's no quick yeah. fix here. This is a long-term thing. You need money to live on. You need to be able to do yeah. other things as well. So like, put a realistic, I always kind of recommend people, I think Tony would have gone to Mab's as well back in the early stages of his recovery to get some budgeting advice around it, whether it's maps or someone else and put in one, a of, the, one of the things one of the things as well barry that you know i was, was recommended for me to do by the by the um one to one counselor i had when i was in kunwara was that that i make a list um of all the people i owe money to and i made that list and again as i paid those people off through time there was a certain amount of you know, I've achieved something and there was a certain amount of, you know, uh, making up for, for, for where I'd gone wrong. This is before I started walking the steps or anything else. Um, but uh, certainly that was, a, that was a big thing for me, just to get all those people, you know, even if it was 20 quid or a five or whatever it was, just to get all those people down and to walk up to them and, you know, and give them that money back and feel that sense of, you know, you've really sort of righted it wrong if you like yeah i think that's a big one for a lot of people like for a lot of people it's kind of a mixed bag so might owe a lot of money to the bank and the credit union and the credit card and all yeah. sorts of and quite often there's kind of personal loans friends and family most people want to pay down the personal ones first for obvious yeah. reasons because you, you know the person and there's kind of guilt and shame yeah. and feelings around it so quite often that is a nice feeling when you get those personal loans like we all owe money to the bank in different ways, right? Whereas yeah, mortgages, car exactly. loans, whatever. That's the bank is happy that you owe them money. That's how they make their money. That's not the end of the world necessarily. Yeah. But usually it's those personal debts that people have a strong kind of emotional attachment to. And it, it is very gratifying, I think, to be able to get, okay, that one's off the list and to, to get the feeling with that. But just as well, going back as well, because I mean, you were talking when you're talking about your sister managing the money for five years and then she said maybe you should take back control and then you ignore dodged her for 12 months i hadn't remember that part of the story from before but there's something you mentioned there as well that uh you remember when you're you felt trusted by your family for the first time again how long into your recovery was that that was over four years um and i remember like i i was back home living with my mom uh you know after i come out of treatment and like i literally uh i could be going to put something in the bin out the back and she'd be saying where are you going and i was 30 years of age and um i suppose the first instinct for me is you know is to say you know where do you think i'm going but then i laid and cheated on these people for 16 years and and yet i expected to walk back in there and be trusted again and 
I, I had somebody, you know, I was lucky enough that I had stayed in touch with my one-to-one counsellor and I was bouncing stuff off him for the first uh, couple of months when I was out and that was one of the things and he, he just made me see it from their point of view rather than my point of view and obviously that's that's something that, you know, we, we all do pretty regular now is, is look at it from, you know, from somebody else's point of view. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, about gambling, but um, I just felt... Um, I just felt after about four and a half years, I just remember, you know, there's just there was just this air of trust around me, and uh, you know, given a sense of responsibility. And that's this sounds ridiculous now for a thirty year old, but no. you know, whether it be pick kids, pick their, uh, my sisters or brothers' kids off from school or the bus or a, you know, mind them for a couple hours or different things like that, like that's something. I had never done before. I was never there for the people around me. My father died in 89. I was nowhere to be seen. You know, I, I was of absolutely no use to anybody, you know, and, uh, and, and yeah, you know, I remember after I say about four, four and a half years. And I remember just having that sense and being able to sit down and being able to talk to them, you know, in those sort of terms, which, it's pretty shocking for them because they they're after you know they're like you know that initial part of recovery like you know to be sitting down and talking to you know your your siblings and your mom about uh, about things that that happened um, explaining things that had happened what had gone on why felt like guess why acted like that and but to be able to sit down and you know be able to talk to them because that was something I couldn't do. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't relate to them. I couldn't. I thought they were all sad because they weren't gambling thousands of pounds, you know, every week. And uh, I didn't. Th- I thought that my world was the world that people should be living in, and mm-hmm. uh, and I was living in the real world, and they were in some way, you know, living a fantasy or a lay or something. And um, even when you, th- even when I think about stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? When I when I think about stuff like that, not even just then, but even now, when I think about, you know, the way that I felt about the rest of the world and my family and all those sort of things and how far down the packing order everything else was, you know, after gambling and scraping, begging, borrowing, stealing, who can scam and scheme and all they get money together, how far down the list all of those other things were in my life is is absolutely astounding to me. But uh, but that's the world that I lived in at that time. Yeah, and I think for so many people, <clears throat> I suppose that's why I would kind of zoned in on the trust thing because so many people, you probably would have seen this as well in your in your own work, like that it's different from person to person. Obviously, a lot a lot of people will relapse in their attempts to to stop gambling. Like, but a lot of people get into recovery, a lot of people that we work with, like it's definitely possible. And I suppose that's something we're always trying to hammer home on the podcast. The recovery is possible, right? And for the starting point is you abstain from gambling, right? And you kind of give your head a bit of space and, you know, somebody else manages your money in a lot of occasions that can go a long way. You manage your time. It could be the people, places and things you were talking about the friends earlier on. There's a lot of kind of common or garden, fairly sensible stuff that you can do to help you abstain from gambling. Then you need to work on yourself, obviously, as well, if you want to get into recovery. But the trust bit 
is the bit that takes the longest, I think, for everybody. Because, okay, you can stop gambling. You can get three months under your belt, six months under your belt. You can start thinking a bit more clearly. For some people, they can get back into it reasonably okay financial place relatively quickly depending on their circumstances so that box is ticked but i mean if you've been lying scheming stealing all that sort of stuff friends family partners everyone in your life maybe employers co-workers you name it for however many years you can't just flick a switch and have, say okay trust me now you know <laughs> it's the, it's the once bitten twice shy thing which we all we all have that and I think that's the hardest part for most of the people I work with. They're six months down the line, nine months, 12 months down the line. Everything else is going great. But in their kind of close relationships, they expect that the trust should be back at that point. And I suppose it's important that people can hear from you because that sounds normal and reasonable to me that if you're doing stuff for 16 years, that it could take up to four years before people go, OK, now at this time, he really is, you know, in a good place. It was definitely the tough, toughest thing that I experienced in recovery um, was the fact that, you know, as I say, when I walked back out, I didn't walk out into the house with my two hands out going, look at, I'm back, prodigal son's back, sorted, cured. But uh, I, the thinking wasn't that far from that. The thinking was, look at, you know, I, I'm doing the right things. I, I'm never going to gamble again. I, I felt in my head I was never going to gamble again. I felt as if, you know, I was ready to do all the right things. And yet, me saying that out loud, even to, to people close to me, you know, didn't seem right because, you know, I'd let them down in so many ways before. Why should they, be, like, as you say, why should they believe me this time? I mean, like, uh, like, you talk about, you know, people, you know, who relapse and, and different things like that. And then, you know, they learn so much from that relapse and then maybe get it second time around. Um, at no stage did I feel as if I was going to relapse. I left the treatment centre and uh, my counsellor, my one-to-one -one counsellor said, never say that. Don't, 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 don't I want to hear you saying that. And I looked in his eye and said, I'm never going to gamble again. And he just, his answer was, I, I really hope you're right. <laughs> I look back at that and I'm thinking, I don't even know if he if he had that, that much faith in me, you know. But then you walk back into your own home and it's more real for them because say, you've caused that hurt. You know, I had caused that hurt. I had caused the um, untold destruction before when then financially, emotionally, you know, as I say, just not being there for people when they needed me. Uh, and you know you're fighting with that, but you're walking back through the door and you're going, no, that's not me. And you want to you want to shout it from the rooftops, you know, and you want to fucking stand out, out the way Leo Varga or Mike Neil Martin have been standing out. You know, you want to make you want to tell the nation this is I'm different this time. It's, this is this is new. I am not going back. But people need time. The people who you've been hurting along the way, they need time for those scars to heal. And as I say, people always say to me, but how do I know when? And I say, you will know when. You will know when that happens. And I knew instantly when that happened. And I have to say, it was one of the greatest things, one of the greatest things I've ever experienced in my life. 
you know, I, I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to go out and I wanted to, to celebrate it and I wanted to jump up and down, but I, I wanted people to realise as well that, you know, um, that I could be trusted. And then once I realised that that had happened, then it gives you a recovery a boost as well. When I went into recovery, I met a guy in, uh, in Gamblers Anonymous in the first number of weeks. And he said to me, keep coming back. Great things will happen to you when you're in here. And I go, do you fucking hear that? I couldn't, do you know, I heard it, but I couldn't hear it. If that makes sense. Because I thought, you have no idea the shit that I'm in. You have no idea the deaths I'm in. Because it was fucking all about me. Do you know what I mean? But like I've gone back to that game 50 times. And I've said, that was like... Every time something good happened to me, I reflected back on what he said. But now, if I'm saying that to somebody who's going into early recovery, I'd say, you don't want to hear this. He never said, you don't want to hear this. But I always say, you don't want to hear this, but... And uh, and they'll come back to you again and, and whatever amount of time, and they'll say, good things are happening to me. You know, things are really starting to you know, go my direction. Yes, there'll be knocks. Of course there'll be knocks, but uh, you stick with it and, and and these things happen. But again, when when that was said to me in the early weeks of my recovery, I was unable to hear it, really properly hear it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, of course. And I think that's normal. I mean, I think in the early stages, everybody's very <laughs> skeptical and, you know, most people probably don't believe in themselves too much. Much. It's interesting you're saying to the counselor in Coonwara, you know, I'm never going to gamble again, which of course is the plan. But of course, the flip side of that is from the 12 step approach is a very sensible approach. You take it one day at a time, right? And I've often said, I'd say to clients, like, just going back to the thing of trust, you know, that if you were, if your partner caught you having an affair, right? And you said to them, do you know what? I promise you, I won't have another affair today. That's the best I can do. <laughs> they probably yeah. tell you to get on your bike, right? Uh, but at the same time, from a mindful, you know, the 12 step approach to this is very sensible. It makes perfect sense. You need to eat the elephant one bite at a time. You can't think in terms of, I will never gamble again. I'll never drink again. It's too overwhelming, right? So it's from the per perspective of the person recovery, yes. It has to be one day at a time. But I suppose for the people around you, what they want to hear is you will never gamble again, ever. Full stop, end of story. Well, the way I developed, the way I actually developed that after I seen the reaction of the counsellor was that I said, just like you're after saying, I will never gamble again one day at a time. You know, <laughs> and that's, and that, that is, that, that is, and that is very, very important. That is very, very important. It's very important to break it down. You talk to any people, anybody who's playing high-level sport now, you know, like I mean, uh, like if you, any you, if you guys watch the 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 hurling or the, or the or the Gaelic football this year, and it's it's back in the quarters. People are just talking about the quarter. That's all they're talking about now. They're talking about let's get the first seventeen minutes, let's keep it tight, let's do whatever, whatever that 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 plan is. But they're breaking it down. Do you know what I mean? And that's it. It has to be like that in early recovery. You have to break it down. You have to say. You know, today is going to be a good day. You pray when you get up, and I say a few prayers when I get up in the morning. And that my that thing, as far as recovery for me, hasn't changed. But um, but like again, you know, just to 
to reiterate whenever I said that, you know, early on, I like I I hadn't I didn't know enough about recovery, not to say that. Yeah. And uh but yeah, I'll never gamble again one day at a time. <laughs> I love that. I said, yeah. I think I said it once in an aftercare meeting, I went in and said, I'm I'm never gonna gamble again. And you could hear the oohs and the ahs and the aftercare. And then I said once I make sure I do daily reflections, once I make sure I, I do everything possible to ensure that I don't gamble. In other words, do it day by day. And I think once you keep your eye on that and not look at the bigger picture and just as you said, like just develop into the recovery. Um, I think it does really help. I think like I, I just to kind of, I know I'm not coming back in here in the middle of it, but uh, just to come in on a point, like I think I met you very early in my recovery in Coomvera when I was actually in the treatment. I remember you came in and you probably said something similar to that me, but I was kind of in the kind of zone of what does this, what does this guy know? Should I have, um, I have this court case to face. I have, you know, whatever's the face afterwards. But I think what I learned probably through talking to people like yourself who are in recovery and accepting that they must know what they're talking about because they've lived it, they've gone through similar things that I've gone through. I learned how to kind of deal with everything as it came. So, you know, like, you know, I got out of recovery, dealing with the kind of um, the shock that that was like, as you were saying, just before I went off there, like bringing the the preseason into real life. It's it's difficult. And I think, you know, you, you do need to keep touching base. And then, when the court case came, I had to deal with that. And I kind of took it one step at a time, the prison sentence, then I dealt with that. And once you can see light at the end of the tunnel, once you're chipping away at those loans, once you see their improvements in the relationships, once you know that you're getting back to where you want to be, or you feel in yourself, you're coming back to the person that you know that you are. I think you kind of, you find that journey becomes, it does, you really get enlightened at various stages of it. You kind of go like this recovery is brilliant. Um, but at the start, I remember sitting through my first GM and I mean, kind of going, these lads are all off the rockers. What do you, like, they're not as bad as me. They don't. And I very quickly realized that it doesn't have to be any particular story. They had lived it and they were going through the same things that I was going through. And I think that's that kind of connection and that know that you're, to know that you're not alone in that journey. I think that was the one thing that kind of got through me, got me through a lot of those dark times um, in recovery and in the subsequent things that I had to deal with coming out of recovery or while in recovery after that after treatment and I think for me that's recovery for me that's my recovery in its purest form because dealing with these things and learn and the growth that you get by getting through these things without going back to gambling without going to alcohol or drugs or going back into other ways of escapism for me that's the learning and that's that's what makes sitting here now a good few years in recovery um they would say it's probably the best I've ever felt or you know we have our moments like we all do everyone does but by and large, it's not as bad as where we were or, or even the darkest days in, in addiction. So, yeah, you know, Tony, you're talking as well about, uh, you know, the, the, the Gamblers Anonymous, the early Gamblers Anonymous. Like, yeah. if, if I took somebody off the street, no relationship with addiction, and I walked into and they walked into a Gamblers Anonymous meeting, they'd be able to pick out the gays who are long-term and the gays who are just in through the door. I remember walking in through the door to my first ever Gamblers Anonymous meeting. And uh, when I went in there, it wasn't what I expected. There was a couple of boys, it was four or five lads up the top and they were having a crack. They knew each other. They played golf together. They did, you know, all those things. And uh, I walked in, all, all I want to do is cry. Every time somebody opened them out, all I want to do is cry. And I'm thinking, these boys have no idea the shit that I'm in. And, over time, I, I realized these boys have been through the exact same thing as I've been through, regardless of how much we've spent or 
anything else. They've been through the mill the same way as I have. But when I walked in there, I was expecting a lot of, I was expecting everybody to be very solemn, very glum, very, and I soon learned that it wasn't like that. But I still wanted the same thing as I've, as I've been sort of, uh, chatting is about all day. I wanted to be the gay over there who was seven years free. I wanted to be him, and I didn't want to have to wait seven years to be seven years free. Do you mm. know what I mean? And uh, and and that's one thing that you know I I keep hopping back to. And but the fact that you do keep going back, and the fact that uh, you you're, you're learning so much of the gay who's just in the door or the gay who's there twenty years. And uh, and that was the thing for me, and it was the thing for me was to take all of that, as much of that stuff on board as I could. Uh, people often say to me, "I'm not going back to gamblers and I don't like them." You know what I mean? Or there's somebody talking crap in them, and I said, "But you're not there for him. You know, you're there. You're there for yourself." And that's what I found very early on and again just lucky I was was a gay there who was 14 years uh, free and you know I used to I used to I knew instantly I used to hang on his every word I, I knew instantly that the stuff that was coming from him was the stuff that I needed to hear and it wasn't always uh, it wasn't always rosy in the garden with him or anything else but I felt as if uh, I needed to listen to him once I you know was able to uh, relate to what he was saying. I related to the rest of the room, but in particular, I related to him, and I learned so much off him in that in that uh, in that time. There was a fella in my first meeting as well. He was, I think, he was five years free at the time, and I was saying um, I wanted to be him, and I wanted the quick fix. And even like what we were saying, but your book earlier on, I was just talking to Barry before he came on. I was saying like I was running around everywhere looking for your book before I went to treat because I thought this will have all the answers. This is a quick fix. And I was reading the kind of as a Carlo man who had very little knowledge of football or hurling or any kind of GA. I was going to read, this is all about GA. This, there's no answers in this. But then <laughs> I did relate to so much of when you talked about the gambling side of it. And what I kind of, my biggest realization is that from that is kind of, you know what, I'm not alone here, but also I need to do this the hard way. I'm not going to get answers. I need to put in the work. I'm not just going to get answers within the first couple of weeks of treatment, uh, either within meetings or within the book. I need to see this out I need to learn from the people who have been there and done it uh, and also to be able to ground myself from the people who are coming in after me and kind of recognize that that was me a few weeks ago but now I'm in a lot better place and for them to see me so I think I always love going back to the meetings in in a Thai and the treatment center because you get to see a mixture of that you get to see a mixture of the lads who are coming in since since I was there and the same lads are still going in there today and fair juice yeah. and they're brilliant because they were, they were the rock behind my recovery at the very start. They kind of sat down with a cup of tea afterwards. That's what you were saying earlier on. It's, it's not the same when it's, it's on Zoom because you get that cup of tea afterwards, that kind of extra little lift after the meeting. But also, I used to love when I used to come back afterwards and people would see my, how I'd gone through the 12 week and they would see my journey. But then also, I used to the biggest thing I used to get from it is seeing someone coming in in week two or three when they were allowed to come to the meetings. And then see their development for the next nine or ten weeks, and that was, you know, you'd see that. That reminds you, I think, of the journey that you've gone on yourself, and I think that's a, a huge part of recovery. Yeah, I, I just I was going to jump in there with a couple of questions because I'm mean, just going back. I know Tony had to duck out for a minute, and we're just kind of getting into some of the nitty gritty because I think this is the stuff, a lot of the stuff that people really find fascinating because 
Okay, you can talk about things like people, places, and things. So, seen you were talking about earlier on, just kind of classic twelve-step across all the different meetings, AA, GA, NA. But then you're hit with the reality of well, everybody I hang out with gambles, or everybody I hang out with and socialize with, well, we socialize with alcohol or drugs and or drugs, right? So, if I take all the people, places, and things away, then I'm left with nothing, right? And that's this is something that comes up a lot across any kind of an addiction but you'd see it with gambling a couple as well especially younger guys now you know you, you don't have to be a massive sport head there's so much gambling connected with us that you could see tony were talking about this the other day you know, a group of lads coming in to a pub they all had the phones out they're all on different betting sites and they're checking the the prices against different betting sites in real time while watching a match in the pub like i mean this is the kind of where we're at at the moment I mean, for you, Oshin, like that, that friends part, did you find that difficult? I mean, did you find that you had to radically change how you socialize? Did you have to isolate a lot? Yeah, yeah, radically, I radically changed it. And, uh, and for the first 12 months, it was quite easy. I was, I was in Dublin, I was walking from six to six, I was coming home. My mum would have a, a sandwich sitting on the edge of the table in tinfoil, I'd grab it, uh, get my football gear and head away to football. And sort of that's the way it was sort of just revolved for me uh, for some time. But uh, I changed a lot of the friends instantly. When I say friends, like my, the, my core group of friends stayed, but the acquaintances uh, were gone. And the people who I re- had realized, like when I went to treatment, my family, apart from my family, one other person got in contact with me. That just shows you where I was at. People were fed up with me. That was the first thing. But uh, the people who I was hanging out with at that stage, I mean, they didn't even, they hardly noticed I was gone or if they knew I was gone, they weren't really that bothered. So uh, when I come out, it was, it was, fairly simple to get rid of those people uh, I had to walk back into two change rooms club change room county change room uh, I chose to to tell all of the club boys you know where I'd gone and I chose to tell some of the people in the change room who I played with at county level because I wasn't close to them all yeah, we're, we're, we're teammates and all but wouldn't have been extremely close or anything so um I chose to tell them as individuals, the people that I felt needed to know. Um, but I very quickly got rid of that. And then as far as the things and the places I was going, like uh, part of the ritual for us winning championships or All-Irelands or what, Ulster's or whatever was you drank on Sunday night and you you got up and you headed to the pub on the Monday. And uh, I wouldn't do that anymore. Because, um, well, every pub you walk into in, in the town that I live in would have would have racing on, and it wasn't genuinely wasn't because I felt I would have a bed. It was just I just felt as if I needed to take myself away from those situations, and I needed to make sure I didn't put myself into those situations. So that's what I did. You know, I you know I didn't buy the newspaper. Um, I, you know, I, I was very careful about the sport that I watch. You know, I've often, you know, me and Nail would probably, me and Nail McNamee would probably be very similar in that, you know, like lads, only for sport at this moment in time and through Christmas and all that, there, like me and my kids, I genuinely don't know what we would have done. You know, it was 
it was darts. It was, you know, we're big into soccer. It was Gaelic on. It was, you know, we would, I love cricket. I love 2020 cricket and all that sort of thing. Like, um, so we watch it. We watch a lot of sport. But like my kids are, you know, as I say, are six and six and the two boys are six and eight. We girls two, but two boys like are constantly asking me, like, I mean, the first thing that comes up, you know, at halftime is bet three, six, five, you know, and uh, Ray Winston, oh, Ray Winston, I think is his name. Uh, and I believe he used to be an actor. Uh, at one stage, but he's very much, <laughs> he's very much part of the gambling community now. I I know that because it's the it's the voice that keeps ringing in my head every time he watches. You know, you watch a, a a Premier League game, but my boys are asking now. My boys are asking, what is that? And when they see ten to one, they think, who does that man think is going to win ten one? That's that's their relationship oh, with it at the minute. But that's going to have to be to be explaining but the this the way i look at it is now that it's at saturation point it probably wasn't as bad when i uh first came out of treatment but uh like to try and avoid even the odds and games and all those sort of things and the, the thing about uh i found about my recovery as well was that for the first two years people generally even though I didn't want them to walk the eggshells around me as far as mentioning gamble or anything else after that two-year period, people were going to me, such and such as even money at the weekend, great bet. Do you know what I mean? Because people think that, well, he, he had a he had a problem with that. That's sorted now. You can still have 20 quid on teams at the weekend. Or, do you know? Because people don't people don't get it, and I can understand that because I didn't get it till I got it either and, and uh, until I started to learn about it. And, and so that for me is the thing. Uh, so I, cha- I would have changed a lot of those things uh, fairly dramatically, and like the ac- the access to no to n- having no access to money, you know, and people, I don't know if people put enough uh, credence on 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 doing that in early recovery, and and I know you guys, you know, because I've heard you speak about, you know, used to be advocates for, it, but not everybody is, and I I think that that those damage limitation things early on are so important they form a part of the bigger jigsaw but it's a crucial part as I say early on and uh, and for me I would have changed a lot of things, I would have changed the friends I would have changed the, a lot of the things I was doing I would have been careful that I wasn't in this situation or that situation and uh, I would have been very careful around that I'm still careful around it but I don't it's not something I think about, it's just something that sort of that is, that comes um, sorry, that comes fairly natural now because as I say, you just you just get you find yourself getting so far removed from from everything that is gambling. Um, and I have friends who yeah who who would have a who would have a bet, but I'd never they would never be talking to me about that. And 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 again, I've said this on many occasions. I'm not on a, on a crusade to stop everybody from gambling. Do you know what I mean? Like I know there's people out there who can go and have a have a bet or have a few quid on a, on whatever it is, uh, and leave it at that. But I'm not one of those people, and and therefore I had to remove myself from all of the situations that I would have had would have put me in any sort of danger. And uh, once you get into those good habits early on, uh, you know that's that's a crucial part. I would have I would have taken myself out of stag parties and different things like that because, you know, I would have felt that 
you know that just wouldn't have been the, the right place for me and stuff. But yeah, that's just as as I protected myself as much as I as I possibly could, and and I threw a lot of self care in there as well. I say, okay, I'll take the last month out of it, but I've tried to eat fairly healthily, do a bit of exercise, all those things. So so yeah, so that's they're the things that sort of would have worked for me. Just to come in on a couple of points there, because you made me smile thing with a few things. Like I I remember when I eventually ventured back into the pub <clears throat> after treatment, you know, for a couple of months. And, you know, my, it was still very much in the public domain, you know, what had happened. But I remember I walked in on a Friday night, my best friend Niall said, like, we used to always play cards on the Friday night. And there's a couple of lads in the corner playing cards. And he said, listen, lads, you may stop playing cards because Tony's here. And I just called him aside and said, listen, if you're going to start doing that, I'm going to stop coming down because they're entitled to have their game. And I just yeah. removed myself from it. And the same fella, he's the best in the world, but the same fella, he always say, he calls me Riley. He says, hey, Riley, I know I shouldn't be talking to you about this, but, and then he'd go into talking about the odds and he'd be laughing away. And like, like I'm, I am so far removed from it now that I can kind of, I can block it off. And I think a big part of that was because the my kind of gambling came to light fairly publicly. I think while it was very difficult at the time, I think that has really helped because my friends know about it. And, you know, it, were, it was the fact that a lot of my close friends did stay kind of the new, the real me and the kind of statements. But no, a couple of them that I was surprised that don't drift it off. And that's fair enough as well. But I think like the majority of people would know that I have a problem with it. So that I think they don't, they would have tippy-toed around a little bit at the start, but not anymore. They'd be, they'd be slagging me about it and talking about odds to me. Now I just block it off. But definitely with Ray Winston, it's one of the ones that gets me because it, it, if you do catch that ad beforehand, you're starting to think about certain aspects of the game. Like, you might be switched off to the normal advertising, but because he's saying a certain player is going to score or a certain team is going to win a certain amount, it does it does draw you into it. Like I'll talk about Liverpool United or not Liverpool City um, before Christmas when the, he came on and said City were 2-1 to win whatever price it was or whatever. And then I remember watching the game and Kevin De Bruyne missed the penalty. And it was only after the game, so geez, that bet could have come up or, you know, that was that would have been a good price. And that's going back to my old way of thinking. So you... You find that sometimes you, you drift back to old ways of thinking and you just have to catch yourself each time and and kind of cut it down. But I find that ad is one of the most ones, one of the biggest ones that has a huge impact on me. If I try not to watch it, so I tend to go for a cup of tea or try to just go in and start the match and leave it half time. But it is one of the ones that does get me thinking. And just kind of you talk with your, your, your two sons there at the age when they're looking at that. My daughter's 10 and she turned around and said, we did her what's Ladbrokes? And I, I remember we had stopped at the traffic lights and water before and the lab and she asked me what it was. And I explained it's, it's a place where um, people go in and I tried to explain it in a way. And now I still have to go and explain my whole story to her whenever that's right. And that's going to be a tough conversation. But if I, I, I was just looking back at when I was 10, this, the, the names I saw on the shirts were Sharp, JVC, Crown Paints, Ivaco, all those. But now it's all gambling related. So it is at that stage where it's saturated. You're looking at the matches now, it's all the hoardings, all betting. And like, I'm sure, you know, we're all in around the same age and sponsors from when we were 10, because, you know, when you're growing up, you, you do remember them all. And I think that's the worrying bit because they're being just prompted to gamble and become normalized as well. That's a, br- that's a brilliant point. I've never actually thought about that before, the, the shop and because uh, like, like, I would be into the retro jerseys and stuff now as well. And the lads are getting the odd retro jersey and you know that's exactly it and I always remember the, like the, the big ones for me were the shop and the, and the crown paints and stuff 
but I don't know. You can. I don't know if, if you go through this and edit this uh, afterwards, uh, Barry or Tony. But uh, I'm going to tell you this one that I was told as well in uh, in, in, in Gamblers Anonymous. But there was a gay. There was a, a new gay in. He said uh, he was talking a little bit of Tony about what you were saying. He was saying, uh, "Look, I was looking in the paper today and." Uh, I, I seen the results this evening, and, and I, if if I had a back, uh, I would have backed those three horses, and I would have I would have got a fortune instead. I'm in here, and I'm, you know, and uh, and the boy stopped him, and he said, "You know what you call that?" And he says, "That's called masturbating your brain," and uh, and he said, "Stop it immediately," and. It was it was also good advice, you know. This thing about buying papers, looking at what I have done, what I have done, this, what I have done, you know, all that sort of thing. I mean, like that's, you know, that's some that's a complete no no. Yeah, 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 and people. Sorry, sorry. Now people that comes up all the time. People torture themselves with that crack, and like, <clears throat> it's very very easy to look at yesterday's lotto numbers and go, oh Jesus, I would have picked them. <laughs> you wouldn't your whole. <laughs> <laughs> and in the same way, if you're looking at yesterday's racing results, it's very easy to go, oh, I like that jockey and I like that trainer, I like that horse. And then in your head, you're putting it into a Yankee or you're putting it into a lucky 15. And straight away, you're going, oh, I would have paid off all my debts if I'd only put 100 quid onto that. And it's torture. Like, yeah. Like <laughs> you might have had a dispute. I was like saying, like, if my auntie had a Mickey, she'd be my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sorry, I know we're, we're t- eating up a lot of your time here, Ocean, but there's one thing because I mean, I know people listening to this and I know people that we work with and you know, people who contact us in the helpline and emails and stuff like that. They'll be listening to you saying, okay, I, I, uh, my sister was managing my finances for six years and they'll be going, Jesus Christ, like I, I go bananas when my missus is managing my finances for six days or six weeks. Uh, and for a lot of people, we'd recommend that it would be longer than that. And the sort of stuff that comes up is, you know, it's usually the man is they're in the petrol, they're out in the car and they realize there's not enough petrol in the car and they've no money and they can't, you know, they run out of petrol or come close to running out of petrol or they get a flat tire and they can't pay for it because they've no bank card and no cash. And these kind of, I suppose, unusual types of situations can crop up sometimes and then people it can cause conflict in the relationship sometimes i mean over a six-year period when your sister was managing your money for you did you kind of run into those situations or did you have it kind of fairly well set up that you could kind of manage the day-to-day no never and anytime i did she was just a phone call away i agree with you totally um i sit in front of like uh you know who's going to manage your finance my wife's going to manage for example my wife's going to manage my finances uh completely agreeable to it hands up not a problem and then all of a sudden you know maybe get contact them then in you know six weeks uh or the wife will contact me and say listen you know he, he's he, i'm not managing his finances anymore he lost a head he said it was his money, all that sort of thing, and that's generally speaking uh, the way that the way that runs. So what I like to do is I like I like a little contract at that stage. You know, it doesn't have to put a certain amount of time on it, but just you know, saying that you know how happy you are for that person to look after your finances. So uh, you know, 
three weeks down the lane, you're not you're not saying oh, I I didn't agree to this or you know this is not the way I thought it was going to be. But uh, like the the Revolut card or the or you know those sort of those sort of things, they are the obvious solutions to uh, to things like that. And and I think the fact that that other person has a little bit of ownership, you know, and that you have to go uh, or I would have to go and I would have to say listen. Uh, you know, can I have you know sixty quid because I have to do X? Uh, have you right? Well, you go and do that and get. You wouldn't show me the receipt or send me a picture of receipt. That's how. That's how far this has to go. That's how far the ownership of this sort of thing has to go. And I, and again, you just can't stress the importance of that. While all the other stuff, yes, is going on, and the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions are coming back and all those sort of things. Uh, but this is a that. Uh, say the thing is a, is a crucial part of it but I think no harm to have some sort of contract that's, that says you know yes I'm I'm quite happy with, with doing that because I often uh, talk about uh, gambling like when my when we went in to have our first child my wife looked at me I she was in the passenger seat child was in the back seat I was in the uh, I was driving and my wife looked at me and she said see have a look, good look around you here because I'm not coming back in here to go through all that again. Okay. Because the pain of the, you know, of the pain of the pregnancy of the labor, that was all still going on in our head. And yet we found ourselves back in there twice. And, and I, the reason why I reflect on it like that is because like I have, I have people all the time who come to me and say, listen, I need to get into a treatment center. Okay. Uh, a lot of that can be can be alcohol because you've the physical effects and different things you got. But they'll come to me and they'll say, "Listen, you know, I need to get in somewhere." And you 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 try to facilitate, you can try and arrange that, and all of a sudden, maybe you contact them, you know, two days later, three days later, and you get onto the phone, and this person's going, "What what are you talking about? I, I'm not going in there. I feel great. I feel fine. Couldn't feel any better." And that same person is banging on your door a month later. You know, wondering can they get into a treatment center again? And you've got a forty-eight hour window to try and turn that around. But uh, that's why I sort of you know you reflect on it in that way because when when the ga- when that part of the gambling and the losing and the despair and the self-loathing and you know the relationships breaking down and friendships and all those sort of things, when they are actually um, when you're really really sensitive to those things. Uh, and and you know it's 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 just happened to you, you know you will agree to anything in order to move the situation along. But that changes because the hurt goes away a little bit. I mean, it's it's when the hurt goes away to still have that motivation to keep to to be single minded enough to go on and still get yourself into recovery. And that's the thing. And I understand, like myself, there was lots of false dawns. There's lots of times where I woke up in the morning and said no. That's me. I'm. I'm. I'm never gambling again, and uh, and yet I find myself in the bookies an hour an hour later, and that's you know that was a revolving, uh, cycle door type operation for some time, and then eventually you know couldn't take any more. You know I stopped gambling because I couldn't take any more. Couldn't literally couldn't take any more. It's going to cost me my life, and that's when I uh, I was going to say I decided. I don't know if you know if I should say that. It decided that I, that I had to get in the recovery or it was going to take my life. 
Um, and once the, the proactive stuff started, then it's not easy. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's doable. Yeah, and I mean that what you're talking about there with the contracts with the finances, I think is is uh, is there's definitely something in that. Quite often, myself, Antonio, we get the partner in and we try and sit people down and negotiate something because, like that, like your wife coming out after having the first child, I think I remember that as well. <laughs> Hollis Street in Dublin, my <laughs> wife going, "We're never coming back here. This, we're done." Um, and of course we had the second child, but like, it's that thing of, you know, at, at bread is soon forgotten. You know, you forget the pain of the thing, whatever the painful experience was. And you go, you know, we've all had horrible, horrible hangover as well. I certainly have, uh, from a night out. Yeah. Yeah. A night on the booze where you swore blind never again. And then you cut to two or three weeks later and you're doing the exact same thing. So like we are humans eating, have a eat, eat, eating if, if people can't relate to that, even eat eating, you know, you, you especially over Christmas night, you, you know, you eat oh, you eat a ridiculous amount of food and you go you say to your, you wake up the next morning you go and you, you go to bed that night and you go, I tell you what, I am never doing that again. And you you roll around all night and you don't sleep and you get up the, the next morning and you know you eat clean for about three hours and then all of a sudden you're stuck back in that press again. The dread, that dreaded press that everybody has in the house. But uh, yeah, so like, people might be able to relate to it in that way as well. And there's one other thing, Tony, I know you probably want to come in there with something, but just that idea of being accountable and transparent with your money. Like you were saying earlier on, I think Tony had to duck out for a sec, that it was kind of about four and a half years into your recovery when you felt trusted by your nearest and dearest again. Like, And again, that it's going to be different for different people. Um. But that thing of if you're being open and accountable and transparent about money, which is such a big part of gambling, if you can do that, you can push up that timeline of regaining trust. And like you touched on earlier on, regaining the trust is the longest thing in anybody's recovery that I've come across. You know, people cannot gamble on the head. Okay, that's a process. That's a day to day process. They can work on themselves. They can do their own personal development. That's a process as well. And you can get into a good place in a, in a re reasonably short time frame for a lot of people, certainly into a much better place. The trust thing can take a long, long time. That's the biggest project, I think. And that's the thing that people don't expect. They think stopping gambling is going to be hard. It is, but you know it's doable. And they think that maybe working on the underlying issues is going to be hard, and it can be. But again, it's doable. But they don't expect the trust thing. And it's the thing that, that really rattles a lot of people. And again, yeah. it can be a trigger to relapse too. But if you're being open, you're being accountable, you're being transparent about the money, you're bringing home the bloody receipts. People hate doing it. They feel like a child. They feel emasculated. Yep. I'm sorry. That's just the price of admission. That's just the way it is. Yeah. But you um, make, make peace, but just to quickly just finish up on that, there's the same fella that I was looking to say, and I want to be him five years. He was five years recovery. That fella now is probably 14 years in recovery. And he'll always say he still keeps the receipts in the glove compartment of his car. And his wife will always say, would you stop keeping them? You don't need them. He says, I do it for me. It's as much for me as it is for you. And that's the accountability. And like, you know, even when, when, when my money comes in, I transfer the majority to my partner. And there's that transparency that was there that wouldn't have been there at any time before gambling or not gambling. No one would have known. And I think that's the thing. I think I've made peace with that side of it. And there's, it's the ability not to have to hide anything from anyone. And that's, for me, that's, for me, that's recovery in a nutshell. But it, it is that whole thing of, yeah, I think with the contract and stuff like that with, with, with money, it has to be something that works both for the partner and for the person. And you have to find that balance, which is not always easy. 
um, that works for, for, for both. And the Revolut card is always a good way of doing it because there is that accountability or you can cut off certain aspects of it that you can't take money over an ATM. You can just tap or whatever that looks like. But also, um, you have to, I know I work with someone, I've worked with someone long-term before and he was saying that he he takes ownership but he still does the control money and he's made total peace when he's fine with it. Um, and I said, I transfer money in every month and it's I'm okay with that too. There's absolutely no problem with that side of it either. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just about mindset around it as well as, as much as anything else, I think, and just kind of accepting this is part and parcel of recovery. And the reality is that I don't want to ever go back to where I was, so it's a small price to pay. And it is still your money, it is still the couple's money, so it's not like it's it, you can't have any access to it. You just have to have a bit of accountability. I mean, just before I finish up, Bushing, I mean, at the moment you're, you're working with Sporting Chance, and I mean, you touched on Tony Adams early on, and I love that quote. I've, I've kind of... I've mangled it a few times. I keep quoting it to clients and I keep messing it up. But it's that one, you know, the best thing about recovery is getting all your feelings back. I'm paraphrasing here. And of course, the worst thing about recovery is also getting all your feelings back. And that, again, you're talking about the trust, but I mean, that that part of the project where, again, people don't often expect that because like yourself, I mean, Tony's kind of different in that he started gambling in his 20s. I think you started gambling in your teens, if I remember correctly, which a lot of young lads would do. And if that's your kind of go-to thing from an early age for dealing with difficult situations or relieving boredom, relieving stress, or kind of dealing with good days, dealing with bad days, and you take that away and it's like, oh, hang on, I have to deal with all this stuff without the thing, my go-to thing. Yeah. I think that's the other part. That's what real recovery looks like is learning how to do that. Now that's a process as well. I mean, with sporting chance, it's kind of, is it predominantly kind of educational stuff that you're doing there with sports people? Yeah. Education, um, you know, majority of it around gambling, but uh, dangerous behaviors. Um, so we would mainly be talking to, um, uh, f- football league clubs, Premier League clubs, uh, jockeys, darts players, uh, um, rugby league players, you know, so that's sort of who you're talking to. Normally when you're talking to Premier League clubs, it's normally the um, the academies and stuff like that. So uh, it's a pretty captive audience. It's something that, you know, they, they have to do as part of their contract. So whether they like it or not they're there but I suppose when it's on Zoom they could they could they literally could be asleep if 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 the if they if they really wanted to be but and that's why again you know that interaction and being in that room with these guys is is obviously much more beneficial but uh, we have to make do with what we have for now and 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 that's the way it's been for now and and as I say uh it's very short it's it's 35 minutes or so you know the the actual education piece <clears throat> and uh, and and it is it's it's beneficial for for lads because you know the reports that we would be getting back from clubs is is no different to what look at what's happening here with G, in GA clubs and all that it's it's rife um it's the go to thing now during lockdown uh, I I very I very naively thought that lockdown would give. Some people are reprieve. I, I thought the, the people I was thinking about was was families mainly that they would get some sort of reprieve from the person in the house, you know, gambling or whatever. But obviously, that's gone completely the other way now. Um, and uh, that 
that has to be worrying, especially when you consider the first time around. We didn't really have any sport, you know, at all, you know. So um, I, th- I think that's one another one of the reasons why, you know, you talked earlier, Barry, about uh, the things we can gamble on or the go-to things and it doesn't necessarily be sport. And then you open up a whole new demographic to, uh, to gambling. And then, like they say, the, the biggest influx of people into gamblers now is the women between the ages of 25 and 45. And how difficult it is for a woman to walk into that scenario where there's like, I, I, I've been in lots of gambling honest meetings where uh, a woman has walked in, she stayed, but they, they find, they find themselves unable to come back because it is so uh, male dominated. So there's a lot of women out there at the minute who are struggling big time as well, you know? Sorry, Tony, I don't know if you wanted to come in there. Yeah, that is something that comes up with female clients sometimes because, <clears throat> yeah, they try out the local GA meeting. They could be the only woman in the room, unfortunately. You know, and I suppose the, the, the statistics from around the world will bear that out. It's kind of 80, 20 males. I mean, if it's a small group, you know what I mean? There's a decent chance that a, a woman going in first time could be the only woman in the room. And I suppose it also skews in that women tend to go more towards things like slot machines, roulette, stuff like that, casino, online, especially online casino type games, and the yeah. men more towards sports. So then you get those two two degrees of alienation because, okay, first of all, there's the gender thing, and then there's the a lot of the sports gamblers would be looking at people who play slots going, you're off your head. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean, ironically enough, like it's all gambling at the end of the day, but there's, there's this kind of incompetent, lack of comprehension between the two groups yeah. like you know quite often now some people would would gamble on all kinds of everything and kind of bleeds across the two um and that thing like i mean uh, 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 myself and tony are man united and liverpool fans uh, respectively and we were kind of giving each other man grief. united as well yeah go on nice <laughs> and they were giving each other grief you know kind of ahead of the match at, at the weekend just going by and i was looking at i regularly check the sky sports app and i kind of checked the articles on man U. and there's an article it wasn't even an article it was like gary neville says there'll be four corners in the first half and like Going, what what is this? <laughs> Jamie Carragher says there'll be a yellow card in the second half. It's like this isn't an article. This is a, creating a betting market for these stupid bets. Yeah. Right? And Sky Sports don't even own Skybet anymore because that's part of Flutter. Like so, I mean, this is the level that we're at. Right? That it's supposedly an article. It doesn't say that it's an advertisement. They're they're making these predictions about these ridiculous markets of these silly bets that loads and loads of people do, especially young lads. And this is where we're at. You know? Well, I I wrote an article on uh, at, uh, in April about uh, virtual Grand National, and I thought that was one of the most it was one of the most disgusting things as in relation to. Um, I don't know if you want to call it cheap marketing or whatever you want to call it, but it made the news, you know, and it made mainstream news, it made RT uh, news, six uh, one news, and uh, and it was all under the guise of raising money for the NHS or the HSE, and I just honestly, it's, I was just very little gets me gets me railed when it comes to to this stuff because I think us gays probably have seen. 
people in general have seen the, the most of the, the most of these things, but that was one thing that really got me. And I, fucking, I, I, I hate, I, I hate sitting down and writing articles. I hate doing it. Mm. I hate doing it. I would do stuff on a dictaphone or something, but uh, I hate sitting down and writing. Articles. I just sat down and I just couldn't stop writing. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. Now none of it made any sense. It was most of it was ranting and raving. But whenever I was able to look over it again and actually, you know, condense it into something that people might appreciate or might understand, but I just thought well, that was one of them to use to use that you know that raising money thing, uh, just you know to entice people back in and and the fact that mainstream media could not see that. That just it railed me. It railed me as I say that much. I just had to sit down and do something I don't particularly like doing. That was right. Yeah, you and you were right. I remember that article, and it was utterly disgusting and and so transparent as well. What they were trying to do, which was a trawling exercise to get millions of people's email addresses signed up for accounts, so they could flog them stuff. They could send them marketing emails. They could send them free bets. You know that, which cost them nothing because there's so many terms and conditions connected to them in the guise of, oh, aren't we great? <laughs> We're amazing money for the NHS during a global pandemic. You know, this is at the height of the pandemic and kind of make it. And at the same time, I think because it was a virtual Grand National because all sports were off, even horse and greyhound yeah. racing was off at that point. So it was also a reminder that, hello, folks, even though real sports are off, we're still here. <laughs> we're still here. You can do virtuals 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Even if there's a zombie apocalypse, you can do that stuff. Never mind the global <laughs> pandemic. It'll just keep going, right? So it was so, you were so bang on about that. And it was such a sickener. And it was so, I think it said a lot about a lot of the media outlets, the fact that they didn't catch on to that straight away again the gambling industry is one of the few industries that's actually making money during this pandemic they're a huge advertiser that feeds into the kind of media attention that they get as well anyway that's a whole other ball game i know we're into your time here tony any questions for us before we let him no, just, back? two quick ones and and the first one is like with that uh, i'm again i'm not anti-gambling in any shape or form but stuff like that does royal me as well and Barry has to kind of call a lot of the stuff that I'm going to put. <laughs> I, I nearly press post online. So I do get a little bit riled up with stuff like that because I still, you will, I, I imagine you'll agree that there's still a lot of the same failings that are there from your time and from my time gambling that are still there and people are still falling into the trap. And I suppose last question is do yourself and Barry think United will actually win the league this year? Hmm. Well, well, as you know, being a Man United fan, that we are. As deluded as the next, so yeah, I do agree. I think I think I'm, well, I'm, I'm, great chance. I'm the Liverpool, I'm deluded. I was deluded for 30 years. Oh, <laughs> Barry's the oh, you are right, I was deluded for 30 years. Next year will be our year, but uh, <laughs> oh, again, I just want to say thanks a million for coming on. I know I missed a bit of it, I'll probably catch up on it all later on. So it's um, yeah, I enjoyed it, lads. Thanks very much. That's, I really my therapy. That's my therapy done for the day, <laughs> mine too. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. If you would like to support this podcast, as well as our frontline treatment, prevention and helpline services, please consider donating five euros per month using the link in the episode description. Thank you. 